Welcome to Spark Your Fire podcast. Content discussed on this podcast is general in nature. Please seek specific advice from qualified professionals. Now, let's start with the quote of the week. If it wasn't for Michael Jordan getting cut from his ninth grade basketball team, he wouldn't have became Michael Jordan. You know, if it wasn't for, uh, I seen an, an article the other day where they were talking about Oprah Winfrey and how she got fired because she wasn't good for television. You know, you got people like Walt Disney who got fired, if I'm not mistaken, from a newspaper saying he had no imagination. These are the same people that I got to deal with. Tell me what's not, what's not a hit record. <laughs> so, so what do you tell them? You tell them, you know, you know that, that all they can do is learn and come back bigger, better, stronger, because all it's going to do is lead you in the right direction. Good, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Friday Wrap. Uh, gosh, it's uh, end of towards the end of April already. Can you believe it? A quarter of the year almost gone. Um, and I can certainly feel the chill in Sydney. I don't know about uh, you guys down there. Jazz, are you feeling the chill at the moment in Melbourne? It's getting cold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't look like you're cold, mate, because you're inside. But, uh, you know, John and I are basically wrapping up ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, it's getting pretty pretty cold here for uh, for Sydney people. <laughs> so. Ready for those three months where it's just going to be pouring down. <laughs> Well, at least it's sunny. I think that's a, that's a good thing. So, you know, I think we're loving the autumn temperatures at the moment. So, um, but yeah, John, how are you doing, mate? Good, good. Uh, it is cold, um, but I was uh, always cool as a cucumber. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you're going to gonna show up on your on your tea top, right? So, <laughs> uh, that's right. <laughs> that's usually your style. Keen to get into it. And, uh, you know, uh, these Friday uh, chats are the highlight of my week. So, uh, John is cozy with his property market. Oh, yeah. No, I can tell he's loving it. He's got that winning screen, uh, a grin on his face at the moment, right? It's like, <laughs> I just had a lovely week, mate. So uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> so uh, I've been hearing I've been hearing that uh, people are saying that the property market is, is, is going crazy. I think, you know, if you speak to anyone who's looking to buy at the moment um, and, uh, you know, everyone will be telling you that, with the last few months, you know, the, the market may have already done 15, 20% in such a short split of time. So, you know, everyone's kind of thinking, well, is, is, you know, the market's gone bonkers, <laughs> using a technical term there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but is the market, is the property market really crazy? I think that's, let's have a chat about that today uh, as, our, as our key topics. Um, and look, I think I'm going to, I'm going to turn the table to John because of that of that grin that he had, <laughs> and I'm sure you had a lot of conversation with his client this week about whether the property market is currently really, really crazy. John, what's your view on this? Yeah, yeah, the, the word crazy. We will have to turn to John. <laughs> Clarity there. Uh, so, um, yeah, look, the markets the markets moving up quickly, and I get I get told all the time, oh, the market's crazy, market's crazy. So I think it's worth, as you say, Dave, let's have a, a chat about whether that's the case. So my my overarching view on this is that the market is responding rationally to crazy policy settings. So there is so much stimulus, and the stimulus is super, super irresponsible. Interest rates got put to zero. There's there's all this sort of universal basic income type uh, job keeper, job seekers, and all these things are really weird. And I think that's what's weird. The property market and the stock market and all these other markets are responding rationally to, um, to, to 
irresponsible and irrational policies. That's that's kind of where, where I'm coming from. You know, I think the, the policy settings keep changing. So we had in 2016-17 really restrictive APRA regulations, right? And at that point in time, the property market was a bit like a beach ball being held under the water. And once those restrictive policies got lifted, the market had to sort of spring up to where it would otherwise have got to if there wasn't artificial suppression. That plus artificial stimulus uh, in the form of lower interest rates is, um, uh, is, is, is very stimulatory. So I think it's normal um, and no, it's not normal. It's, it's a very rational response to crazy policies. What do you guys think? So I think John summarized it really well at a macro level. I'll just go down a little bit mm. uh, into the micro mm. for this stuff. I think the market, is it crazy? It was a legit craziness because of the pent-up demand, interest rate cuts um, from last year. And the demand was legit in terms of also the homeowners and the owner-occupiers, which we have discussed in the past. I think we will see market calm down a little bit during this winter period. Uh, and... Uh, maybe sometime towards the summer, spring kind of thing, it will start to, um, the demand will start Demand will start to ramp up once again, but it won't be as crazy as what we saw at the start of the year. At some point, the craziness will go to another level, uh, which is when the investor demands shoot up and the, migration opens up basically when when the when the dust has fully settled so that's where at a very micro level macro john's explained it super good um so i think we'll see the horse settle down over here and that's good uh it's good for the cycle uh and that doesn't mean the cycle has ended or it, it has plateaued but i think that it that temporary pause after such a crazy high growth and the demand that we have seen in the market is a good thing not a bad thing yeah, it's just part of it. It is just part of the um, the, the overall, I guess, the, the environment, the current economic, the current stimulus, as, as John and, you know, Jazz, you guys pointed out. And also there's been a shift in terms of the new lifestyle that people are chasing as well. I think that's been a big, that has been a big driving factor in terms of people looking for bigger homes and try to move away from um, the CBD apartments, closer to work. You know, it has, COVID has fundamentally changed the way Australians buy properties and look at how they should be buying their properties and how they want to live. So that has a, you know, that, that sparked the whole, and plus on top of that, you know, when everyone's getting locked down, they managed to save up a lot more. So now people are getting a lot richer because they can't spend it on overseas travels as well. So got a lot more money there. And, and that's a really good point that you just made David over there. Uh, the saving level to some uh, extent increased over this COVID period. One, Correct. Uh, of genuine savings people were spending less and also uh, that fear of something going wrong uh, so people just start to cut down on their expenses uh, the unnecessary ones so all of that has added a legit fuel to the fire um, and the demand was all genuine so I, I, I think is it was it crazy yes uh, was it crazy for the wrong reason no uh, will the craziness stop for the period Probably yes, 
Will it come back uh, in the near future, being in a, in, in a year's time? Yes. I think that one of the, the main aspects to this whole, you know, market dynamic at the moment is that the interest rates were moved so quickly, the market's responding just as quickly. So in, in the US, the Federal Reserve had a meeting on a Sunday night and dropped interest rates by, I think, like 75 basis points. <clears throat> so the, the, the market, the, sorry, the regulators and the central banks weren't waiting for their regular monthly meetings to drop interest rates. They did it really, really quickly. They were dropping interest rates every week back a year ago, right, a year ago. And so because the interest rates moved so suddenly, the, the economic calculation moves had to move just as quickly. So suddenly, all of a sudden, um, two things happened. One is that um, it suddenly became a lot cheaper to buy than it did to rent. So you had all these renters moving out of the uh, rental market into the buying market. But normally that would happen gradually over years and months and so on. But because interest rates were literally dropped, um, that happened very suddenly. Uh, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing is if you've ever done like a, and to all these sort of actuarial students out there, um, <laughs> to all the actuarial students out there, if you've ever, um, if you've ever done a discounted cash flow model, right, um, where you go, okay, I'm going to get $100 a, a month every month for the next 10 years at this interest rate, my, my, my asset is worth $100,000. If you go in there and you just change that interest rate from 2% to 1%, the asset doubles it's 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 just mathematics that property prices had to adjust quickly. So under any discounted cash flow model, any income generating asset um, is worth something at one interest rate, and then it's worth something else at another interest rate. It, it's just mathematics that property had to go up, and eventually it'll absorb the interest rate increases, and then it, it'll stop going up. And then the government will have to come up with another package to see asset prices rise again. So this, it will hit a wall, um, but just don't, we just don't know when that is. Mm -hmm. I think uh, on on when it is, uh, your predictions in the last few episodes, Sean, on uh, it happening in the next cycle ending in the next three to four years, kind of thing. I, I think it's pretty spot on on that one. Uh, that's how long the cycle will last. Uh, there will be ups and downs, like we are just seeing right now. Uh, it, it being uh, it trying to plateau a little bit. Uh, not a lot. So stock standard, nothing nothing surprising over there. It's a four-year cycle, looks like, three to four-year cycle. Yeah. And also one other thing is it, it, it's actually very early. We keep asking, when's APRA going to come in? I don't think they're going to put a four-month real estate boom fire out. I mean, it's, it's too soon. I, I feel like it hasn't been, you know, we're just starting. Not that we want it to turn into a boom or anything like that, but I think that they're not going to jump in shadows and try to, put out something that's just adjusting over a couple of months. They'll, they'll wait to see more quarters come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably want to see want to see more stabilised. And I think, you know, as we pointed out last episode as well, I think the April figures and even the May figures to an extent will be very interesting to see whether the property data actually starts to show that it's starting to slow down or whether it started to normalise. I mean, it's still going to go up, but it's not going to be, you know, as we all said, 3 point something percent a month increase in price is just not sustainable. But having said that, I think from memory, I can't remember exactly whether it was 2002 or 2012. John, you might be able to recall this better than me. The property price did double back at that time. I think one of those years, okay, one of those years. Um, so 
at the moment, you know, I think a lot of people are saying it's it's crazy. It's probably more of a sentiment, uh, you know, how they feel. Into but the actual data itself is not is not is actually not not showing that at the moment. You know, what if you look back into the past data when when within a year an actual property market has actually doubled in that time? Um, did people say that time was crazy? Probably did. <laughs> or how about in comparison to now? Um, may not be, but it just be, the velocity of the price increase at the moment is strong. Um, however, the data has yet to support that to say that the property has really gone crazy. Since. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll make a quick prediction on uh, the property market as, uh, let's just say Melbourne and Sydney. Before the cycle started, which was Q4 last year kind of thing, or around Q4 last year, the cycle, property cycle started, by the time it ends, we'll see prices close to double. Yeah, 100%. 2019 to 2025, prices double, and we're probably 25% into that. Correct. And that's why I went back to Q4 last year, because yep. we already 15 20%, 25%, whatever that figure is, already into it. So another 75% in the next three years, we know interest rates are not, are not going anywhere. Uh, yes, there will be ups and downs in between uh, that period of four-year cycle, but we will close to double. Yeah, to Dave's point, uh, the 2002 or 2012 number, I think it was 2002, the biggest, the biggest um, boom in Australian property history was between about 2000 to 2004, and it, it feels a bit like that to me because we had a rising property market and a booming com commodity market. I think it's some. I think we're something like that. And then what happened was between two thousand and four to say two thousand and twelve, property didn't do a great deal. Um, so <clears throat> I think so something like that. Every boom is different. Um, if it keeps going at this velocity, it'll probably end worse than than that one did by just going sideways for a couple of years. Uh, it'll probably it'll probably be more painful than that. But um, uh, but there is, there is. I, th I think what people don't appreciate is that there's a lot of catch up to do um, because we've got to overcome the withdrawal of the APRA regulations and we've got to uh, adjust to a new interest rate environment that there's just some catch up. Um, property just hasn't been a great investment since 2017. So there's mm -hmm. catch up. And after that 100% oddish growth, whenever that completes to 2023, 2024, when the cycle ends, we'll probably see a 25% pullback and it will stay like that for maybe six, seven, eight, who, who knows for how long, but quite a few years. So and this, uh, I think, I think this, uh, this, funny enough, I think this actually coincides with the 18-year property cycle, uh, if I'm not mistaken, John. I know you are. I should call you Professor John now, actually. Can't think of it. <laughs> Professor John talking about economics and 18-year property cycles. <laughs> uh, would you mind sharing a bit of our insight, I guess, just uh, reminding our, our listeners about the 18-year property cycle uh, or property clock on that? Um, just to touch yeah, on yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And where we sit at the moment on that. Because I know back in 20... No, back in last year. No, the year before, you were probably the only one um, that was kind of saying, look, I think by the time we hit about 2023, 2024, prices are likely going to double again. And no one totally believes you. Everyone's looking at you like, what's this guy talking about, right? 
Thank, so. thank you, David. Yes, <laughs> everyone thought I was a bit crazy. No, true. So, so we, you know, we we had that webinar where I went through the eighteen year cycle, and that yeah. wasn't the first of April, twenty twenty, which is right in the middle of like April Fool's lockdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true as well. That's true. They must have thought I was joking. But uh, but I went through this eighteen year cycle, and I can't remember the chap's name who came up with it. But it was an Australian guy who went and looked at all the data in um, in the US, the Netherlands, and the UK, and and Australia, and came up with this. A very predictable model, which is saying that property um, has a, moves in an eighteen year cycle, and super quick. The eighteen year cycle is uh, two upswings of seven years. Um, after the first upswing, it's um, there's a two year mid cycle correction. Let's say that's uh, between two thousand seventeen and two thousand nineteen. Let's say, and then there's another se- uh, seven year upswing, but that's uh, more uh, dynamic, so it, it moves up a bit harder. And that ends with a four-year correction. Um, so what, what matters is when does the cycle start? And I think the cycle started in 2012. So in 2012, we had a, a seven-year upswing and a, a downturn around 2017 to 2019. And we're in the second swing, uh, the second upswing of the 18-year cycle, which will end in about 2025, 26. But it'll, it'll also be a bigger move up. If it's right, and where I always get nervous talking about this is I don't know exactly when the cycle starts, but I think it starts in 2000. Uh, I, th- I think it started in 2012. Yeah, it, it fits in pretty well in terms of that model, I should say, because we are seeing the prices going up harder at the moment after the 2019, right? So, um, yeah, funny enough, I just thought I brought that on as well. Jess, have you got any views on that or any thoughts? I kind of agree with that. I mean, if you look at it from a very high-level perspective, that's exactly what is playing out, right? Yeah. Uh, we just go, when we talk about the current property cycle, maybe in a bigger picture, that's the micro part. But if you look at the macro, again, what John said, I think is bang on. It's funny, I have never looked at it that way, but John, I do agree. Yeah, yeah. I, need, I remember I going to. I need to think a little bit more, but the theory makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Comes from Professor John. Why are you arguing? <laughs> it's pretty reliable. I remember going to some of the um, private banking organisations, sort of presenting this, and they thought I was had two heads. It was beginning of two thousand nineteen, and I said it would the, the the correction would be over soon, and they said no, no, no. This is going to run down for five years. Um, but uh, yeah, so so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting hypothesis. But I think every sta- every city like Brisbane is probably on a slightly different cycle to Sydney. Yeah. And I think you just got to be careful about when does the cycle start. But apart from that, it, it is it is like it is reliable to say two phases up with two corrections in the middle, and that's basically what the eighteen year cycle. Mm. No, really good. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for keeping us up to date with that. So <laughs> you get to you get a glimpse of uh, what Professor John is thinking in the and in, in the background and how he and how he basically put through these hypotheses when everyone else think that how the hell would this guy say that the price is going to double again in the next seven years and then it started happening. You know whether that's a coincidence, whether that's people are you know artificially actually printing. Well, we all know that people are printing money at the moment. The RBA's eye, the world's doing that, and that subsequently caused it to happen is another story. But anyway, we'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, no, I think um, and and the funny thing is um, uh, when I thought about. Um, I mean, that, this kind of ties in with uh, one of the bigger announcements that just happened last night in relation to 
Biden announcing that uh, he's looking at doubling capital gains tax uh, in, in the US. So um, that's obviously a big news, uh, I believe. I mean, it hasn't really passed. Uh, it's, just been, it's just been put forward at the moment, isn't it, John, from memory? So nothing set in stone as yet. Yeah, he's just putting expectations out there. But, look, he campaigned on it and um, mm. I'd expect it. But, yeah, so he's, he's said that it'll uh, raise long-term capital gains taxes for the wealthiest Americans to 43.4%, um, including a surtax. Um, it'll, that's higher than the top federal tax rate on wage income. And um, uh, the tax rate would also apply to returns on assets held uh, and sold after more than one year. So we get... So it's it's kind of double the Australian capital gains taxes. Um, so this is a you know this is class warfare. You know, from my perspective, capital is where wealth comes from. It, it's not really income. It's um, it's capital. And what uh, people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have come out to say because they're all in favour of high taxes because that they can afford it. Uh, they always say, look, my, my income, my wealth is not in my not in my wages, like Warren Buffett doesn't pay a salary uh, to himself. These guys don't make any income as such. They have very high net worth and they earn dividends and stuff like that. Uh, so they, they, so taxing their income doesn't solve this massive deficit problem that the US has. It's, it's got to be on the capital value of, of their assets. Uh, I, I, I hate this sort of stuff, but... Um, but because it forces you to sell capital, and once you know, there's we learnt at sort of school that capital is like the tree, and the income is the fruit. You, you know, successful societies don't encourage you to chop the tree down; they encourage you just just to pick the fruit. And I always get nervous about capital gains taxes because it attacks the tree and not the fruit. So, what do you guys think? I guess it's it's important to define what wealthy is, right? Um, there was a time in the past when earning, I don't know, maybe 70, 80K salary was wealthy. These days, even if you're earning, if you're in the, if you're in the highest tax bracket, will you consider that to be wealthy? I won't, right? So, um, and then on top of that, if you uh, start applying this tax, onto the assets that are had longer than a year, um, I think people will start to become a burden on the tech system, to be honest. And this has been discussed a lot in Australia as well in the past. So um, I don't know. I think I, I think it's it dip, I, I think they, there's more sophisticated ways of doing applying the taxes, but uh, just saying uh, it's uh, for wealthy people, it's de the definition of wealth keeps changing. So uh, when the underlying currency is unstable and the definition of wealth keeps changing, mm. how are you going to work out whether it's the right strategy or not? So to me, it's that simple. Yeah, like, I think they say what income is taxed, but wealth is not taxed, right, from, from memory. But John, I guess, <clears throat> what is the underlying... Uh, what is Biden trying to achieve with this? So I think there are two two things he's trying to achieve. One is uh, the US has a deficit problem that goes beyond beyond economics, beyond mathematics, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they, their de deficit's twenty eight trillion, twenty eight trillion. And as we've discussed on this podcast, if I gave you a dollar every minute, it would take me thirty seven thousand years to pay you a trillion dollars. So their deficit is. Um, 
28 trillion and it's mathematically not possible so we've also discussed on this podcast that we're that what's actually happening this is a managed bankruptcy or a a managed default or a managed decline of the US dollar like it's all that stuff is is what we're talking about here so one is the the, the mathematics of the deficit the other thing is um it's about it's it's about um the optics of trying to so-called do something about wealth inequality. And I think, I think you know, there's sort of a Democrat thing that, that, that in income inequality is something that needs to be solved. And um, to some degree that's true, but, but um, it's not always the case. And, and I think that it's political. There's a lot of politics. There, there was, mm-hmm. a, there was a, an interview with Barack Obama 10 years ago where he said he was arguing for higher taxes and, and Barack Obama, the interviewer, gave Barack Obama some numbers that when you lower taxes, you increase tax receipts. So if you lower the tax percentage, tax collections go up. And he said, in light of this information, would you still do it? And Barack Obama said, yes, I'd still, I'd still raise taxes even if it collected less taxes. So I think there's politics in there, Jazz. And just to add one more thing, we have discussed this on the podcast, I think it was last year. Uh, what's the point of paying taxes or higher taxes when you can print the currency anyways, and it's not backed by anything, right? So this whole tax system and the currency system, the reality is it's broken, right? Um, it's a bandit that we are applying one way or the other just to let the system keep churning for as long as it does. Um, but I just don't get what's the, what's the purpose of paying a tax when the, when the, when the uh, politicians or the government can actually print that money on the fly. So if you want to increase the tax, why not just print more money? Because at the end of the day, you're trying to collect this more money to build whatever you want to build, whether it's the infrastructure or pay your debt, right? That can be done anyways, the other way around. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's the right thing, but when I'm, what, I'm, what I am saying is when the whole system is broken, does it matter? Yeah, no, I agree. And like, if, what's... If, the, if, the, if the money supply was not being increased or the currency was not being debased, then applying the right tax uh, strategies and the rules in place makes sense. But on one hand, you're going to print uh, $4 trillion in a year. And on the other hand, you're going to increase the taxes. Why not instead of four, print five? <laughs> what difference did it make? Really, in the in in that schema of things, like really, really talking super macro here. Mm. But even to take that that concept a little bit further, and I think you're 100 percent right. So so why why tax us if you can print the money, and deficits don't matter? But why why work if you can print the money? So in the old days, like in a free market system. Um, Wealth comes from personal exertion. It comes from working or coming up with an idea or taking a risk. But if, if, if currency or wealth doesn't come from that anymore, then people will stop working. And then the question becomes, where do the goods and services come from? And that's, and that's the road to perdition. That's the road to – that's lights out, right? When it becomes more, more um, beneficial to stay at home, that, that works for like two years and then – then the abundance stops. Then there are no goods and services in the economy anymore, and that's when you get hyperinflation and a default, and it slides out. And that's so we're on our road to that. We're, that's what that's that's where we're going. Exactly. I was about to say that. That's what we are seeing, and that fist fight between China and US. Um, because obviously, Western world has leveraged or borrowed from the future in terms of credit 
the amount of credit that's there in the system. Whereas if you look at these, some of the Asian countries, uh, we talk a lot about Japan, but Japan has got high rates of saving as well. So does other Asian countries, so does India, right? Um, so when you look at all that, it, it just, what we are seeing is essentially uh, a currency war and a, and a, and a default, how to, how, how to uh, manage it peacefully situation. How to print it out, basically, <laughs> <laughs> without, without saying to the world, I'm printing it all out. Yeah. So, so, so this whole talk of taxation, I mean, it's good. It's interesting to hear what Biden is saying and increasing the taxes, yeah. But uh, I don't want to use the <laughs> I don't want to use the abusive language, but I really do feel like using it. Uh, but if you're gonna print the money, man, just get over it. Just tell people what's going on. <laughs> You gotta use. You gotta. You, you gotta use that. Kind of, <laughs> you gotta use that language professionally, mate. Just like, just like the technical term I used, bonkers before. <laughs> Find one, and then we'll we'll, we'll let you use it. <laughs> no, it's really good. Point. I really wanted to use the F word over there. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, mate. No, I, I, I totally agree. I think uh, you know. I actually think that uh, with John, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards this is more of a political reasons uh, than than anything else. To be honest, I mean, people can see that they're printing money. They're printing heaps of money. That's beyond <laughs> humanly possible. And um, and and it's more like a um, doing doing something for. I mean, personally, in my personal opinion, it's more like basically um, making a stance to say we're helping, we're taxing the rich and we're helping the poor to a degree, like, you know, to create that, to create the sense of equality <laughs> in a sense. And I think that's always what they're, that's always the game they're trying to play mm. um, to, to win, to win, um, especially with um, Democrats and, um, um, you know, like uh, we, we know that uh, this is, this is typically what they, what they do. Right. So, mm-hmm. Oh, good. Um, sorry, John. Yeah. I was going to, because we always like to get a, a little bit sinister in these podcasts. I mean, <laughs> in my darker moments, <laughs> this is where Jazz's fingers hovering over the uh, the beat button or the mute button. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, the, the, I've been in, you know, very sort of bad mood over the last week when there's all sorts of stuff that just makes me a bit nervous. And, and I wonder if um, that we talk about like potentially managing a decline. I wonder if, our politicians are trying to deliberately distract us with um, divisive issues so that they can proceed with this currency debasement because that's the big issue, I think, at the moment. <laughs> Who knows? There are real issues out there, but, yeah, I just wonder if they're... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, let's yeah. not get too political. I think the last time when we get to that, it, uh, it's probably going to end up very well, so... I think... I, I'll, I'll just add one thing. Sorry, David. Um, but if there was financial education being taught in the education system, people will stop putting money in the banks. If they knew how the system worked, that the money that you're putting in the bank is not even your money anymore, um, it's, it's... the more you know, the the scarier it is. Like what John was saying before. So, yeah, it's an unsecured liability of the bank, isn't it? It's like <laughs> your money. Yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. No, it is true. I, I do agree. I think if people, yeah, if if, uh, if financial education is part of our education system, the whole the whole will be a very different place today. So, mm-hmm. anyway. 
hopefully, uh, hopefully we're bringing a bit more value to our next generation with these podcasts and getting them more educated. That's why that's why we are doing it and having a chat. All right, moving on. Um, commodities, John. Um, anything you want to touch on for commodities? How's gold, silver? Where we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, look, super, super quick um, because we always sort of touch on this stuff. But uh, the the gold and silver market is looking fairly robust at the moment. It looks like it bottomed on about the sixth of March, and it's been sort of zigzagging higher. I think that's positive. Um, there's always the question as, as to whether crypto is a complement or an alternative to gold and silver, the, the traditional monetary assets. And I, I'm increasingly of the view that it's an alternative, which, uh, like, it should, it ought to be a complement. Like, you, you ought to buy both. But, um, but when crypto comes under pressure, gold and silver go well. And when gold and silver are under pressure, crypto goes well. So it, it seems to be the same uh, sorts of investors that like that 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 you know, those parts of the market. Um, but gold and silver are quite resilient. Um, you, you know, gold and silver are just seen as very, very boring at the moment. Um, I think it's probably justified. But silver silver had a, is, had a good uh, day a couple of days ago and, um, and uh, you know, the volatility continues. But um, I, I'm watching crypto, which I think Jazz will talk to us a little bit about. Crypto's down and the precious metals are holding up. Mm. Yeah, it's a good segue into crypto, I guess. Uh, and we'll hand the bat over to Jazz in terms of giving us a bit about update on that. First of all, just starting with silver, I think silver has been holding really strong. Um, and uh, I've got a strong feeling that we will see a rally this year in silver. Sometime this year, don't ask me when, but the way silver has been holding at the current price levels, um, it is in every shape and form bullish. So to me, uh, what's happened is basically crypto so far, uh, Q last quarter of, uh, sorry, last year Q4 and this year crypto has been sucking all the money out of the commodity space, specifically more gold and silver. And what we are seeing currently is um, that there's a, it looks like for, so far this year, there's a there's a local talk being put into the crypto market, more specifically Bitcoin, which was around 60, 62,000. Um, and in terms of what's happening in the crypto market, with this recent pullback in Bitcoin that we have seen, which is roughly about 20%, I think uh, it will scare a lot of the um, late investors out of the market. But at the same time, give an opportunity for more young and new investors to jump into the market because obviously there's a pullback. Fresh money will come into the system. Um, and what we are about to see is a massive rotation from Bitcoin into the altcoins, all the other coins, in Q2 this year. So the next three months, I think, will surprise people completely with what they see in the altcoin market space, in my opinion. So it's a space to watch. It looks at the moment the whole market is uh, being pulled back, but I'm more inclined towards to say that we are about to see a massive run up in all the altcoins in the next month or so. And sorry, just one more thing. And with Bitcoin itself, you got to remember that starting 
late last year up until now, it's been on a constant tier, rising up and up and up. It's almost gone up by six to eight x. I've got a I've got a crypto question or a Bitcoin question. So when I look, but I'll lead into it a little bit. So when I look at the um, the gold chart, the gold chart. If you pull up a chart, ten years of the gold price, it is a perfect cup and handle. So the cup and handle is like the most bullish um, chart that there is. It spent ten years doing this big U, and we're just in the second half of the, the little handle. Probably complete the handle in let's say five months. Mm-hmm. So when's that end of the year? End of the year. October or something like that. And then and then if that if if these charts are true, we're off to the races. I can read a I can read that chart. My question for crypto is I can't read charts once these prices are at all-time highs. I can, so I have I look at a Bitcoin chart and I hear all these people giving me sort of numbers like 100,000, 200,000, but I can't read it anymore. Once it's gone to an all-time high, I can't read it. Mm-hmm. What how do you read these charts? So that's a good question. How do you read these charts? So the king of the ring basically is Bitcoin. So you gotta you gotta believe in Bitcoin itself and understand its price history, how it performs, where the what the average pullbacks are, all that stuff. Um, and from there, you can go into all the other altcoins that are related to Bitcoin. Um, but then there is obviously other chains on which the decentralized apps are being built, like Ethereum as an example, on which a lot of the other apps are being built, and there are coins that run on the Ethereum chain. So before you can understand any of them, you need to understand Ethereum itself, its history, and all that stuff. So um, it's a, it's not as simple. It's it's kind of like, uh, John, you'll, you'll be able to relate to this, is like looking at gold-to-silver ratio, right? So those are the things that are being in the crypto world, but nothing is set in the stone yet, like gold-silver ratio, gold-to-oil ratio, um, oil-to-petrodollar, whatever it is, right? So those things in the traditional world were set. You knew which chart to look at to figure out what the uh, what, what, what it's going to do to what commodity. So this is a whole new world that is being built in front of our eyes. So nothing is set in the stone. But I think the key players in this space are clearly uh, the big chains, which is uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, and the other ones, they're not really uh, at a point where you can call them whether they will be able to sustain themselves in five years' time or not, purely because of the level of development that's happening in the other chains. Whereas if you just look at these two chains, the amount of activity that's happening uh, I think it's relatively safe to say that they will be here in another 10 years' time, but you never know. So all the pairing that is happening is between either between the Bitcoin Ethereum or the stuff that's running on Bitcoin or the stuff that's running on Ethereum, and then you got to figure out all the ratios and all that stuff. So it's not that simple. And plus, Bitcoin is the only commodity or asset on planet Earth, which has so far seen three parabolic advances uh, in 2017, into sorry, in 2013, in 2017, and now in 21. So, comparing it to another one or trying to read this chart, uh, you really got to look at this chart itself, not any other chart in comparison, because none of the other charts are like that. 
in the history of mankind so far. The only closest one that I know of is Weimar inflation chart. Sorry, I don't have a straight answer. I would love to. So you're saying that you look at the historical movements of Bitcoin to see, because the only thing it can be compared to is itself in the past. Correct. And all this stuff is not ready yet. It's being built. So this is all very experimental. And hence, you don't see, hence you see a lot of, although some uh, hedge funds have started adopting this in their investment strategy, but still the majority don't do it because it's very immature market at the moment. Because I think in a sense, it's uh, it's kind of like using the old, um, the, the traditional way of valuing an, an asset in, in a try to apply to the cryptocurrency and the, and the Bitcoins of the likes, which may not, as you, as you pointed out, um, I'm not even sure whether it's valid to a certain degree. Number one, it's very short. It hasn't got that long history. Um, and number two, that doesn't necessarily have the, some sort of correspondence like, you know, gold and silver, that kind of relationship at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but each each by itself is its own entity. So my question for you then is how do you, as a crypto investor, how do you value it today? What method, what technique do you use to value it? If so, you're not using the traditional method. So the first question is, is it a legit asset class? Is it now an asset class or not? Because so far that has been the question on the table. Let's assume the answer to that is yes, right? If the answer to that is yes, then you look at, what is Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin like gold in the digital world? If yes, if, if that is true, then what's the market cap of gold? Gold's market cap is roughly about 10 trillion, right? What's the market cap of Bitcoin? Currently roughly about 900 billion to a trillion, depending on the price. Um, then you try and work out in terms of its supply and gold supply, of what the price of Bitcoin should be, right? So basically it's being reversed engineered engineered with with the parameters surrounding it to work out the value are similar to what are used in the world of gold, essentially. Based on gold, gold's market cap is 10 trillion. What should be the value of each coin? That sits somewhere around half a million, 500, right? Now, when will it get there? If anyone knew the answer to that, everyone will be investing into that space, right? Well, will it get there? We don't know. Um, Can it be banned? Uh, India recently announced that they're going to. Um, China has tried it in the past. Turkey only announced two days ago or three days ago they're they're not going to allow uh, accept payment in cryptocurrencies. You can hold the as- digital assets, but they're not going to allow payments. So there's a lot of questions around it. And that's why you see that volatility of it going from 3,000 to 60,000, from 60,000 now to currently sitting at whatever, 50, 49,000. Hence, you're seeing all that volatility because uh, there's obviously risk attached to it. And when there's a risk, the returns are decided by the risk, right? So if you think, it can hit the market cap of gold, and you know what the market cap of gold is, obviously, then there's still a lot of room left. If you think that US at some point is going to come out and announce their own digital currency, which is going to compete against it, and all the other central banks 
will come out as well, which means which could put a uh, either put a damper on the price or uh, maybe Bitcoin is not there in ten years time. Who knows? But that those are the risks, right? Uh, and those risks are uh, compounding the, to the volatility of the market and um, the obviously the price. It's not hitting the price of the gold market cap yet. Uh, but if but that's that's just any new asset class that comes into the market, it will have to go through that. The only question is, if, is it an asset class or not? That's the big question. Didn't the Bank of England come out recently? <laughs> they were looking into a digital currency called Britcoin. Is it? I know yeah, they were yeah, I, know, I know all countries have been looking at digital currencies. They're all going to do it. I don't know what the coins are called in each uh, individual countries, uh, but... It's a, it's a look. The way I look at it is, it's a space to watch. It's an open source network, right? If it disrupts the financial industry, then there's a lot of upside still left. And if it gets banned completely by majority of the big nations, then obviously the price will go right down. So there's there's risk and there's return. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Thank you. Well, it's good. Good good information. Good knowledge to, to have, that's for sure. Awesome to have you guys again on the show. Uh, to the listeners, hope you guys are enjoying the content. And if you are, please don't forget to give us rating on iTunes. Uh, and play safe, stay safe. We'll see you guys next week. Cheers. John, Jason, David. <laughs> <laughs>